Good afternoon, and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, the content of this show does not reflect the views of Howard County Community College. And insofar as we discuss legal matters, we are not intending to give legal advice that is specific to an individual legal situation. If you have a legal problem, please contact a lawyer and get advice that is specific to the facts of your situation. I'm pleased to have back as a guest today, Alan Steinhorn, my law partner, Clark and Steinhorn in Laurel, Maryland. And Alan and I are gonna have a chat today about jury service. Welcome, Alan. It's a pleasure to have you. Very happy to be here today, Bob. It's kind of cold outside and a little bit wet, so this is a nice place to be. Very good. So one of the things that prompted me to suggest this topic this time was Robert Mueller's investigation of the Trump campaign and administration in which he has impaneled a grand jury. And we're going to focus on the fact that there are grand juries and then there are petit or petite juries, which is to say the kind of jury service that people are commonly summoned to in their county. Here in Howard County, you get a jury summons and you go in and perhaps you get picked to be a juror and perhaps perhaps you don't. Have you ever been a juror, Alan? I have been a juror and surprisingly I was selected by the attorneys and I sat on a uh, jury trial. And how long ago was that approximately? It would have probably been in the early 1990s because I moved to Howard County in 1992 and I sat on a Prince George's County jury. Okay. Did you find it instructive? I found it incredibly fascinating and rewarding. Okay. What was rewarding about it? Seeing a group of people from the community come together and arrive at what was probably the correct decision and assisting a person who wanted justice in our country. And it's much better to have a group of people tell you an outcome of a dispute than an authoritarian leader or a police officer or a government official. Or even a judge. Or a judge, that's right. Sixth Amendment gives us the right to a trial by jury. Got my little constitution out. So the United States Constitution secures your jury trial right, and here in Maryland, we also have our own separate document, roughly contemporaneous with the American Constitution, which includes the Maryland Declaration of Rights and the Maryland Constitution that similarly provides for a jury trial as well. Yes. One of the things our founders wanted was they didn't want the king to control our uh, our lives. And one of the things that's very important is the judicial system. So by having jury trials, we allow our peers to decide what happens to a person that's accused of breaking the law or breaking any other rule. So I'm going to focus first on the difference between grand jury service and pettit jury service. And can you tell the audience the distinction? Well, yes, but I might even become the uh, host of the show in a moment. All right. I understand that you sat on a grand jury over the last six weeks. That is, well, more weeks? like the last four months. But yes, I did have the privilege All of right. serving on a grand jury. Well, let's start with what they are, and then I'd be very interested in hearing about your experience as well. Um, the Pettit jury is a jury that hears a criminal trial in court. Okay. You can also have a civil trial, which is usually over money damages. Not always, but most civil trials are over money damages, such as a car accident case, a medical malpractice case. You had a house built and there are defects. You sue the builder. These are all cases where you have a choice. You can either have a jury trial where eight members of the community come and hear your case. Two of them are alternates. Six of them then decide your case. Must be unanimous. In a criminal trial in Maryland, we have to have 12 jurors, and they must all 
agree after hearing all the evidence, all the testimony in court, they must all agree on guilt. So if one person holds out, that lone person can lead to a not guilty finding or what would really be not a, not a not guilty finding, but a hung jury. So there's no okay. finding of guilt. So that's what a hung jury is then. A hung jury is where all the jurors cannot decide on the outcome and it has to be unanimous in Maryland. Now, a grand jury is when members of the public, and Bob, you would probably know better than I, I believe it's 24. I think in this instance, 23, but yes. There are 23 people selected from the community who are then put in a private secluded room to hear testimony, usually from police officers, sometimes from prosecuting attorneys, and oftentimes from witnesses about particular defendants that the state wishes to charge with a crime. A majority of the grand jurors must vote after they hear the presentation of the evidence uh, that the person should be indicted or charged with a crime. There is a an old saying about the grand jury proceeding, and that is that a prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich on anything. And the reason for that is that in the grand jury proceeding, unlike in a pettit juror where you have a trial, there is no defendant attorney to challenge anything the prosecutor says. Additionally, in the grand jury setting, unlike a court trial, you can introduce hearsay evidence. So a detective might get on the stand and say, I spoke to 14 people, all of whom said they bought drugs from defendant John Doe, and they don't have to call the witnesses to testify. In addition, there's no defense lawyer to cross-examine the detective to ensure that his testimony is accurate and that the witnesses are correctly stating what they saw or heard. But regardless, the grand jury is a group of people who hear evidence to determine whether someone should be charged with a crime, and the pettit jury is to decide trials in our courts of of, uh, Maryland. So in other words, a pettit jury hears an individual case, whereas a grand jury may hear a multitude of different cases. Yes, I should elaborate on that. The grand jury, when it meets, might be meeting for four hours, six hours. There might be five or ten different cases presented at that time. The detectives may come in and just ten minutes present a case, and then the grand jury goes back and decides whether or not to issue an indictment. So, yes, there are many of them. In fact, I'd like to know your experiences. How many cases did you hear a day when you sat on the grand jury? You know, it was somewhat variable, but I would say the most cases one would typically hear would be around two dozen or so. Two dozen in one one sitting? Yeah, and then maybe a dozen or so you know, on a minimal day. And do you think that the grand jurors that you sat with were fair? Um, I would say it was, in that regard, a wonderful experience. And I mean, you know, I've only done it in Howard County. But the people on the grand jury were so extraordinarily intelligent and so focused on details that it really has affected how I would try a pettit jury case going forward, which is to say the next time I have a jury trial in Howard County, I'm going to make sure that I focus on every single detail, both good and bad in my case, and lay them out for the jury to decide because they're going to pick them up one way or the other. I may as well be fair-minded about it, and I think they will be more inclined to go in the direction that my client wants them to go. My experience was similar to yours. I was very impressed with how intelligent the jurors that I sat with were. They were uh, asking the right questions. It is an experience I would recommend for anyone listening to this program. You also feel like you're doing something good for the public. You are participating in an orderly administration of justice in our country. Now, what you did is only criminal, isn't that right? That's correct. So there are no civil cases heard in the grand jury. There are no civil cases. And one of the things I did find, and it was useful being a trial lawyer, is that I'm not hesitant to ask questions about holes in the case or problems with the case. And I found people initially were not inclined that way. 
Um, and I didn't want to come across as being a jerk, you know, and asking all kinds of questions and making things go on longer and that sort of thing. But what I found is within one or two sessions, everybody else picked up and I really didn't have to ask too many questions. And so I was gratified that, and I feel like I kind of gave them the confidence to understand what was problematic with any given case and then to really focus on it, even in greater detail than I did. So I see you almost every day and I didn't hear a single word about any of your cases. Tell me why. Well, because it's secret. We're not allowed to talk about, and you know, if you're on a pettit jury, you know, for the most part, there's some rare exceptions. You can talk about your jury service and the nature of the case and the facts and the parties and the witnesses where in the grand jury testimony, it is entirely secret. And I have not said anything of substance to anybody about my service. And I, I'm pretty confident the same would be said of the other 22 people serving on the grand jury. So this would be a good time for me to segue into a topic of interest to me. What the heck's going on with Robert Mueller? and Russia collusion, because I watch television at night and I hear, I guess they're pundits, or I hear representatives of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party saying there's no evidence of collusion. Now, you've just told me that the grand jury proceedings are secret. Does that mean that there might be evidence that we don't know about? My sense of it, you know, without regard to any insider knowledge, because my grand jury had absolutely nothing to do with any of the Russia collusion or, or Trump campaign problem cases, is that Nobody on the grand jury is saying anything. It is alleged in the media that Robert Mueller has been and his people are all very tight-lipped about it, understandably, because they don't want to damage prospective prosecutions. But it seems on its face that there's an awful lot of information that could lead to criminal indictments against a number of people associated with the administration. The most obvious one is Mike Flynn, who was President Trump's national security advisor, and to a lesser extent, his son also. So one of the things, if you look at grand jury proceedings, and you can go back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, is the prosecutors don't always tip their hand. They don't always say, oh, I could do this, I could do that. For the most part, they shut up and they gradually encircle their prey, as it were, and, and bring in the facts and bring in the witnesses until people are willing to either plead guilty or run the risk of going to trial on various serious charges. And I believe that's what's going on here. So then it's possible that there's evidence that's already been presented before the grand jury that might support these charges that we don't know about? I think that there is an incredible array of information. One of the functions of a grand jury, and in my grand jury service, uh, I saw this, is that you don't merely have a police officer and a prosecutor get up and, and read facts of a case. You also have witnesses come in and provide testimony to give you a broader context of some of the cases that exist. So you might have a witness come in and testify one week and then have them come in four weeks later. And then later still, a an indictment is brought to you that involves the testimony that you previously heard. And you kind of weigh that in your mind in addition to the information. So I think that there have been many witnesses who have come before the grand jury uh, Bob Mueller has impaneled, and their testimony is going to be relevant to probably some people very high up in the Trump administration. Well, if I could comment just for a moment, one of the things about the Trump or the Russia grand jury that is of great interest to me is that it is not just a criminal investigation. What Bob Mueller is doing with the grand jury has great effect on the politics in our country. No question. Would you agree that the grand jury proceeding that's going on concerning Russia, collusion, the Trump administration has perils that are non-criminal, that is political? 
There's absolutely no question about it. And I think that one of the things that's intriguing about it is that this particular president seems to kind of react straight from the heart to everything that comes his way, whether it's through a Twitter feed or through interviews, you know. And so he, uh, when he got rid of the FBI director, tried to couch it in, well, it was recommended to me by Rod Rosenstein, who was then effectively acting attorney general. And then later, Lester Holt on NBC News interviewed him and he readily admitted, I fired him because this uh, this Russian investigation, it's all hooey kind of thing. Well, that's what interests me to some extent. When the president says something like that to Lester Holt on TV that I fired him because it was Russia, doesn't the president have the right to fire the FBI director for any reason? You know, he does and he doesn't. The fact is he could fire him without offering a reason. We recently had James McCollum, whom I know you know, as an expert in employment law. And he was on this show talking about at-will employment. And more or less being an FBI director is an at-will employment. And so the president can dismiss him. But the problem is that— Well, an at-will employee, you can dismiss for any reason. Correct. But if you are dismissing him to obstruct justice, then that is not okay. Can I dismiss an at-will employee because I think they're overweight? Long as you don't express that, yeah. So that's kind of what's going on with the Mueller investigation. Because if Trump, if President Trump discharged the FBI director for any reason, that's okay, as long as it's not a bad reason? Not an illegal reason, like obstructing justice. So would it be illegal for President Trump? And perhaps this is a legal conclusion that we can't jump to yet, but if The fact finder, if there were a trial, and we're far, far away from that, but if a fact finder were to find that President Trump discharged the FBI director to interfere with his investigation of the Russia collusion issues, would that be something that could be criminal? Absolutely, positively, yes. Do you think that Mr. Mueller is investigating that? You know, he's got a reputation among Democrats and Republicans and people in the intelligence community and people in the law enforcement community of being a completely straight shooter and a person who is very attendant to the task at hand, doesn't permit leaks, doesn't permit tomfoolery. And I think he's running this investigation in that way. And it's hard for me to imagine that he doesn't find some of President Trump's Twitter ruminations distasteful. You know, I'm impressed by how I haven't heard anything out of the grand jury that's going on in Washington, D.C. Or actually, I think it's in the Eastern District of Virginia. Or well, maybe I, there, there are two of them. I, I believe there are two grand jury investigations. There was one that was already impaneled before Mueller took them on. And just so the ladies and gentlemen of our audience understand... A grand jury takes a while to kind of learn how to operate smoothly and to learn to understand underlying charges and that sort of thing. And so, for example, the grand jury I was on the last session, we had two dozen cases the last day and we just mowed right through them because people knew the underlying law. They knew what the standard was for making a determination about whether an indictment should be coming forward and that sort of thing. So Bob Mueller impaneled a new grand jury for some things, but also had an existing grand jury that was experienced and thus knew how to deal with the different case issues and utilize them for other purposes. So, Before you sat on the grand jury, was there any kind of questioning of the grand jurors to see if it was appropriate for them to sit? As we all know, when you go to court for a pettit jury, if you're in a jury trial, uh, the judge will ask questions of the jury members before they're seated to determine if they're fair and impartial. Does that occur in a grand jury? Yes and no. In in both petted and grand jury situations, you get questionnaires from the court about things in advance of your appearance. 
And so you fill out your court questionnaire, you're called into a room along with a fairly large group of people, and they ask some additional questions, but they're not really nearly as penetrating. When you go to trial in a criminal case or a civil case, it's a car accident case or a break-in and entering case, the lawyers are allowed to submit questions to be asked of the jurors, what they call voir dire, which is the French to speak and to see, okay? And so these questions are to establish whether you might have some pre-existing bias one way or the other. What if my brother was convicted of the particular type of crime that we're now presenting to the grand jury? I think that the court might be inclined to dismiss you. I also think that the court would be inclined. The, the way it proceeds in the grand jury, there's questions out there, and then you are allowed to go talk to the grand jury judge if there's something you have reservations about or something you think is germane to your ability to be fair and impartial. Many people that uh, get jury notices to appear for jury duty over the years as a lawyer, I've gotten calls from people that say, how do I get out of jury duty? And I've always found that interesting in as much as the experience I have is one that I wish I could d duplicate and I would recommend to anyone that gets a jury notice to go to the jury. Was that your experience? I mean, you? I was thrilled to do it. I've known a lot of lawyers. You know, one of the things about being on a grand jury is it does go across four months. It's every other week. So it does take a lot of your time away from your employment, and there's no question about that part. And I can understand if you're a small business person, that sort of thing, it could be damaging to your business. I mean, I'm a lawyer, so there's a certain level of interest that I would have that I'm not sure everybody else would. But I, I do believe that everybody would find participation in this process fascinating, and it really does elevate your opinion of your fellow citizens. And it made me think very well of the police officers in Howard County and the prosecutors. I have all all the respect in the world for them going in, but it certainly was enhanced by my experience. If I could just move on to one other thing. Concerning the Bob Mueller grand jury, he's already indicted three people, one of which has already taken a plea agreement. How long do you think this investigation is going to go on with Bob Mueller's grand jury? You know, it's difficult to speculate. The thought presently is that the trial for Rick Gates and Paul Manafort is likely to be next April or May. And this is a complicated enough inquiry that I could easily see 2019 being its ending. And, and the problem is that prior grand jury investigations involving presidential administrations often go off the, the, the breadcrumb path. You know, it's one of those things where you're investigating, in, in President Clinton's case, they were investigating Whitewater in this land deal. And that, you know, ultimately he got in trouble for not telling the truth about having sex with an intern. Well, there's absolutely no relationship whatsoever between the Whitewater land deals, which ultimately seem to be innocent in nature and the sexual misconduct with Miss Lewinsky. So that is a, makes it very difficult to predict or handicap things. I do think that, that Robert Mueller and Ken Starr are very different people and that Robert Mueller is very focused on the task at hand and that he recognizes that the greater issue, Russian interference in our election process, is something much more important than sex with interns or land deals in Arkansas. This is something that every citizen in the United States should be worried about because, you know, it may have benefited President Trump this time, but it might be next time around that it benefits someone else and he's not so happy about it. Well, for those in our audience who aren't 
closely following what's going on. If I could make a parallel to something that happened 45 years ago. Sure. You and I were 17 years old in 1972 when five burglars were caught breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters, the Democratic National Party's headquarters. And many people are not quite putting two and two together. But in this case, the allegation is that Russia broke into the Democratic National Headquarters, only they did it electronically. So people are not seeing the parallels, at least some of the people are not. And that's what this grand jury is trying to get to the bottom of. That is a wonderful, I, you know, I, I think about Watergate because it was a subject of fascination to us in our sort of formative years, but I hadn't really thought about that analogy. It's a break-in. Yeah, it's, it's a great analogy. It's a, it's a break-in, only the consequences in this case appear to have been, well, the break-in really wasn't discovered, or at least the consequences of it, the influence of it, wasn't really discovered until after the election, whereas here, this happened before the election. The Republicans were apparently trying to get dirt on the Democrats, which is exactly what happened in the Hillary Clinton Democratic uh, National Committee break-in by the Russians, or as some have posited, perhaps a 400-pound man in New Jersey on his bed. I remember that tweet. My general outlook on it is Mueller's a pretty efficient guy, and I think that there will be a number of other indictments. One of the things that happens when there are multiple potential defendants in a grand jury situation is that you kind of want to move up the ladder. So I'm not suggesting this is true, but if hypothetically President Trump was involved in collaborating with Russia to do various things that were damaging to Hillary Clinton's chances and that affected the outcome of the election, the goal of the prosecutor, if they were aware of this, would be to convict whoever is at the top of the pyramid directing things. So, you know, you indict Paul Manafort, and just on its face, it sure looks like there's 90 zillion things he's guilty of, including all kinds of money laundering and activities associated with Russians, associated with Vladimir Putin. Putin. Um, so he's a campaign manager for President Trump. That's a pretty high up guy who was highly influential. And if you're looking at Russian fiddling around in the campaign, you know, if the campaign manager is guilty of that, well, that makes you really start to look up the ladder and say, is there some way we can elicit testimony from Paul Manafort or from his associate Rick Gates that leads us up a little bit higher and that would you know, clearly indicate that President Trump knew what was going on and countenanced it and encouraged it? The expression fly on the wall applies here. I would love to know what's going on inside that grand jury room. It would be fascinating to know. And my sense is that while we may see indictments and we may see some sort of investigative report, I have a feeling the grand jurors aren't going to have a heck of a lot to say about it. And then there will be 12 pettit jurors that will hear the Manafort Gates trial, correct? That is true. And those people have to come to unanimous decision. They do. And just on its face, again, the information that was disclosed in the indictments it looks like a pretty easy conviction for him. So then you start getting into the question about, can they squeeze Paul Manafort? His younger associate is uh, you know, a, a guy with kids and that sort of thing. And it's like, oh, you go to jail for 15 years and miss your kid's childhood, or maybe you could be helpful to us. And that's this isn't just Robert Mueller doing this. I think this is done with all grand juries and all prosecutors are always looking for ways to get useful testimony to bolster their cases. Well, I would like to know how one spends a million dollars on suits and ties. Well, obviously, you don't dress like Paul Manafort, Alan. And for those who don't know, the the records that have been unearthed by um, Special Prosecutor Mueller do show over a million dollars or approximately a million dollars sent to his tailor. million dollars in Oriental rugs, too. 
Yes. Well, law offices need high-class rugs. Yeah, you know? We're going to have to work on that, I think. Well, I don't know if we're going to go that direction. but At any rate, what, you know, one of the things about grand juries, and, and it was my experience, is it isn't as though it just spawns one prosecution. If you hear 24 cases, you're likely to have 24 different cases. Now, they can become interwoven because if you're indicting one person and they were kind of only a peripheral participant to somebody else— you know, you may use the testimony of the peripheral participant to convict somebody higher up the food chain. And I, I think that's exactly what's going on here. The absence that's been noted in the media is over Michael Flynn. And Michael Flynn and his son, on its face, appear to have some significant legal problems, appear to have been acting as agents of foreign governments and getting paid for that, while they were also working for the Trump campaign and subsequently members of the Trump administration. And people wonder why indictments didn't come out for him, that that seemed obvious. Well, the answer to that is likely they're talking to Mike Flynn and his lawyer and his son's lawyer and saying, you know, Mike, you probably don't want your son going to jail throughout his children's childhood. Same thing. And they're kind of squeezing him and seeing what interesting things he has to say. Flynn is particularly prominent in that regard because his attorneys, he was being asked to come before the Intelligence Committee in Congress and his attorneys had advertised back in... I want to say March of this year that he, quote unquote, had an interesting story to tell and they were seeking immunity from prosecution. I would think that anybody that is notified that they could be on a grand jury should do it. I think it is highly instructive. So when we talk about somebody getting immunity from prosecution, could you briefly describe to our audience what that means? Well, one way law enforcement is able to press charges against people is by arresting other people involved in the crime and offering them leniency on the sentencing if they will contribute to the case. So mostly in organized crime cases, in drug cases, you might find somebody, say, who's selling drugs on the street, but you want the person who's importing the kilos of heroin. So you get the person on the street, you say to them, look, you're facing 10 years. If you cooperate with us, we'll give you probation. We'll charge you with a lesser offense. And they tell the police who the person they're getting it from is. They arrest that person. They offer them the same deal, and they try and go to the top, and that's how they move up the ladder. So most of these prosecutions involve grand juries that indict people, and once those people are indicted, the prosecutor asks them if they want to cooperate and take a lesser sentence. In the 1980s, Congress enacted mandatory sentencing guidelines. So when you are facing a mandatory 10-year sentence, you're a little bit more interested in what the prosecutor has to say about cooperation. So what about the pros prospect of getting some sort of pardon? If you're Paul Manafort and you're indicted and you're looking at 20 years and your associate's looking at 20 years and you're getting ready, I mean, it's expensive to go to trial and to hire lawyers and that sort of thing. But what about the pardon possibilities? I truly believe that Paul Manafort and some of the other people involved in this case are expecting that they will be pardoned and they will not cooperate. So who if, pardons them, first of all? Well, the president of the United States has absolute pardon power. Okay. It's an incredible power. There is no questioning a president's pardoning power. Now, one of the interesting things that occurs with the president's pardoning power, if it is absolute, suppose somebody said, I'll give you a million dollars if you pardon me. I don't think that's ever been decided by any court in our country. Can a president pardon someone for an illegal reason? I don't know the answer to that. This came up with uh, President Bill Clinton, who on the, I think it was the Mark last, Rich. last day of his presidency, pardoned Mark Rich, who had contributed millions of dollars to the Democratic Party and was convicted of financial crimes. There was absolutely no, to my knowledge, 
a good faith basis to give them a pardon. I mean, many people feel that the pardon power should be given to someone who was wrongfully convicted. They've gone through the appeals process. The courts have said they got a fair trial. And keep in mind, and this is a topic for another day, the question is not whether you're innocent. The question is, did you get a fair trial? So an innocent person convicted of murder could actually have a Supreme Court justice say to them, I'm sorry, yes, there is evidence that indicates you're innocent now. But 10 years ago, when the trial occurred, you got a fair trial. So therefore, we're just going to leave your sentence in place, and you'll still have to go to the gas chamber. It is a bizarre interpretation of the law. But there's a question in the United States as to whether actual innocence uh, is enough to get you off of uh, a guilty conviction. So the last recourse is the pardon power of the governor for state crimes and the president for federal crimes. So with Manafort and the people who are Papadopoulos and Rick Gates, they could hypothetically get a pardon from President Trump, but would that absolve them of state charges that might exist? No, and in fact, that is one of the things, if you watch many of the news programs, you'll hear that the uh, the New York a state attorney is investigating these people. I'm going to say these people, the people that are under investigation under Mueller. They're also being investigated in New York State for financial crimes, and those can't be pardoned by President Trump. And there is a great deal of concern that the people involved in the collusion charges are hoping to get a pardon and that we may never find out the truth. So I guess the question is, if the investigation is really investigating the Trump campaign, and President Trump, does pardoning these people obstruct justice, and is that okay? That's another question that hasn't been answered yet. In the 250 years our country's been uh, formed, there are some extraordinary legal questions that are arising from this circumstance. I mean, the idea that a hostile foreign power could have influenced the outcome of our election is, to me, one of the greatest constitutional crises of my lifetime. Probably I've never, the greatest I've never heard of anything close. And I must tell you, I was a a Watergate uh, follower when I, w I, I watched the Watergate hearings the summer of uh, 1973. And I believe the present circumstance is much more important and dangerous to our country. And I'm more concerned about the elections in 2018 and 2020. I think that if we say that this didn't happen and it's all a big hoax, then we are susceptible to the same thing happening again. And next time it might be the candidate that you don't want to win that gets the help. So hearkening back to our topic of jury service, it seems obvious that grand jury service in this case is very important to make sure that our political system is kept intact and that foreign powers do not uh, try and get involved in it in the future. And then pettit jury service is important to make sure that the Paul Manafort's and the Rick Gates's and the Papadopoli of the world get a fair trial when ultimately their day in court comes up. Isn't that true? It's much better than having the king decide who to throw into jail. Well, thank you very much, Alan. This has been an interesting topic. This is Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell.